Okay, welcome to day 245 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Isaiah 1 and 2, Psalm 105, and 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 6, 2. All right, beginning the book of Isaiah. Um, not much to say by way of introduction, except that Isaiah is considered um, one of the major prophets. So in the uh, the way the Hebrew Bible um, is put together, you have the major prophets who are um, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and they are so-called mainly because of their length, well, pretty much, I think, just because of their length, um, they're major. And then um, all of the minor prophets are considered the Book of the Twelve. So those are the smaller prophets, all of which we've we've done a bunch of them, Jonah, Hosea, Amos, Micah. Um, and so, yeah, today we do Isaiah, which is, um, you know, a pretty lengthy book, uh, but it is beloved to many, to me as well, and so I hope, um, I hope our time in it together is well spent. So it begins off by describing the book as a vision, and... Uh, as is the case with uh, many of the many of the prophetic writings, it's sometimes hard to know where divisions are in things, like exactly how stuff how stuff is structured. And so, you know, we could always ask, like, well, what exactly is the vision? Is it is it some breakdown of just a bunch of chapters, a bunch of chapter one? Um, but I think placed at the head of the book like this, it is meant to function. This is meant to function as kind of the introduction of the whole book. Uh, remember. Um, a lot of these prophets, although we don't have perfect insight into how they were composed um, um, literarily, uh, it's it's probably reasonable to think that their prophecies were collected and compiled perhaps by others aside from the prophets whose uh, names are on the books. So, you know, this would be a compilation of Isaiah's prophecies. Um the, and indeed, we do actually see something like that going on a little bit later on in chapter 8. So, uh, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amotz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, okay, so this is a southern prophet, Isaiah is, during the days of Uzziah, Yotam, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, this is an enormous span Okay, so Uzziah is king from 792 to 740, and Hezekiah is king from 716 to 687. Now, we're not po positing here that Isaiah's prophesied from over 100 years or something like that, but even if we say that he uttered his first word on the last day of Uzziah's reign and his last word on the first day of Hezekiah's reign, which we know is not true. He was at least prophesying at the time of Sennacherib, so put that to 701, let's say. We're still dealing with like a 40-year ministry there, so 40-plus years his prophetic ministry covers, and um, so very, very impressive. No wonder it's long, um, and yeah, so like we uh, remember We've encountered Isaiah already, even in the in the accounts of Sennacherib's invasion of of Judah during Hezekiah's reign. So it begins calling upon the heavens and the earth to listen, for Yahweh has spoken, and uh, he says, "Children, I've reared up and reared and brought up." Of course, referring to Israel here, specifically to Judah, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. 
the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people does not understand. So even these dumb animals know who's in charge, know who their owners are, but um, but Israel seems ignorant of the one who is Lord over them. And so, ah, or this is this is in Hebrew, this is hoi, which is also often translated woe. So woe or ah, sinful nation, um, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Notice three kind of derogatory ways of referring to Judah. Um, and some of them do actually seem to be kind of riffs on important titles that Israel has borne. So back in Exodus 19.6, um, they were destined to be a—they were called a, a holy nation. Um, here, a, a, a goy kadosh, whereas here they are called a goy chote, a sinful nation, a, a nation of sin. Um, also, offspring of evildoers, right? Um, even in today's reading in the psalm, Psalm 105.6, right, they're called— um, the offspring of Abraham. Here, they are the offspring of evildoers, the Zerah Mireim. Um, and, um, and they are evil. Why? Because they've forsaken Yahweh, dis- they've despised the Holy One of Israel, and so they're utterly estranged from him. Um, then we start to get a hint of some of the stuff going on in these early chapters. Apparently, they have already experienced what it is for Yahweh to hide his face from them and for them to experience oppression at the hands of enemies um, and invasions. And certainly, just as there were in Micah, Micah notices roughly contemporary with Isaiah. Um, uh, There are numerous places where we might place this. Um, We could place it during the reign of Ahaz, which I think is probably a little bit um, more likely here, um, if only because uh, this doesn't sound like an accurate description of the spiritual condition of Israel during the reign of Hezekiah, right? His reign was mostly characterized by reforms and uh, a pretty zealous following of the Lord, at least from what we can tell in the books of uh, Kings and Chronicles. So I think Ahaz is a very good candidate, and he is definitely the king in a couple chapters. So, um, so, yeah, will, will you still be struck down? You've experienced these hardships. Are you going to turn, or are you going to continue to rebel? Um, the, it, then, then Israel, in, in, its, um, you know, in, the, in this rebuke it's received from the Lord, it's portrayed as like a guy who's been beat up with um, a, a sick head, a faint heart, from the sole of the foot to the head. There's no soundness in it all bruises and sores, raw wounds, not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So just this guy that's been beaten and left on the side of the road. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire, right? And all of these are things that have come as from the hand of the Lord, partially as judgment, but also in order to turn them to him. It's amazing how many times in scripture hardship comes in order to turn us to the Lord. Um, Foreigners are there devouring their land, and um, and the daughter of Zion, so this is Jerusalem, okay, is left like a booth in a vineyard. So think about everything is kind of cleared out, it's it's laid waste. Um, if there's one point that does sound like Sennacherib's invasion, this might be it. Um, but certainly the, some of the things that the northern kingdom and Damascus did to Judah also would fit this profile, I think. 
Um, so you think of like a vineyard and then there's just like a solitary building in it, a booth or a lodge in the middle of a cucumber field. Um, it's a, it's like a besieged city. Um, in fact, things are, it should be very clear that it's only because of God's mercy that you haven't been totally wiped out. If Yahweh of hosts, he said, he says, had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Um, this is a verse that is uh, quoted by Paul in Romans 9, 29. And <clears throat> yeah, so the only reason we're left is because of the Lord. So again, are you going to take this opportunity to turn to him? And then he continues on with this calling is calling Israel, calling Judah, Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And then we see um, something that we've seen a bunch of times. We saw it actually yesterday in Micah, where it's like, you know, um, what should, what shall I bring to the Lord, right? And it's like, shall I bring rivers of oil? Shall I bring all these um, animals for sacrifices? And, and Micah uh, tells them what the Lord requires of them. And here Isaiah is very um, in line with that, where the 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 sacrifices if it's not if they're not going to be from people who are who love the lord who have repented and who are acting as his people then they're meaningless and indeed they even can become something kind of negative right they're that they're just this empty form of ritualized religion at this point so what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices i've had enough of burnt uh, of burnt offerings of rams well-fed beasts I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats because, you know, um, it, because for, well, for at least two reasons. One, because for those that maybe you're bringing to make atonement, right, I'm not happy that you've sinned, but also even the sacrifices that are brought for other purposes, you're thinking you're maintaining a relationship with me or you're thinking that you are, um, uh, that you are uh, giving me right worship when your hearts are far from me and 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 you're doing all these all these acts um the, these mere religious rituals when you come appear when you come to appear before me when you come to the temple who's required this of you this trampling of my courts trampling often you know is is kind of like um like almost like a riot this is the word that's often like what in used in the old testament when people get trampled by crowds or or by animals or something like that um he calls their offerings vain offerings don't bring them anymore your incense that you're burning is an abomination to me it is a toe va um your uh, and these these holidays that these holy days that you celebrate that or that you observe new moons sabbaths convocations um, I cannot endure iniquity on the one hand and solemn assembly on the other. Like, this is just a farce what you guys are doing. Um, my soul hates these things. You've become a burden to me. And so when you spread out your hands to pray, and often I'm sure a lot of these, these things that he's talking about here, whether they're sacrifices um, or the observance of feasts and things like that, or, or fast days, holy days, um, these these things have become a burden, right? The Lord's like, it's it's too much. I'm weary of, of bearing them, um, as if, you know, he's carrying this on his back. The Lord's carrying this on his back. And so 
<clears throat> when you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you, uh, and you, even if you make many prayers, I will not listen. So number one, he won't hear prayer. And then um, he tells them to repent, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease doing evil, learn to do good, seek justice. Note here the uh, common connection uh, with justice as a chief concern or lack thereof, um, correct oppression, and then you have this pair that's often mentioned together, bring justice to the fatherless, so to orphans, and plead the widow's cause. Um, and now Isaiah is—the other prophets do this a lot too. Isaiah has some of the most beautiful passages in it, I think, where it talks about—where um, it sprinkles in words of hope to Israel. So in in talking to them about about all this, right, how angry God is with them, um, <clears throat> he nevertheless says to them, come now, let us reason, says Yahweh. Let's sit down and think about this together, that your sins are like scarlet right now, but they will one day be white as snow. And notice that this is a promise, right? This is not a petition to them. He's not saying make make yourselves like snow. He's saying you will be white as snow, and it's like, well, how will this be accomplished? Um, though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. Um, and and then following from this, right? Like so, they're 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 now now white as snow or like wool. Um, they will be willing and obedient, eating the good of the land. Uh, but so, like you know, if if you do this and you enjoy you know the purity before me, having your sins washed away. Um, then um, and and you are willing and obedient, then you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse to do this and continue to rebel, you're gonna be you're gonna be eaten by the sword. So choose: do you want to eat or do you want to be eaten? For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Um, and then, how the faithful city has become a whore. So faithful to her husband, a prostitute. She who was once full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now who lodges in her? Murderers. Your silver has become dross. Now, you write the silver, that's normally what's left after you smelt dross away. Um, your best wine is like it's mixed with water. Uh, your princes uh, are rebels, they're companions of thieves, they're doing, in the, so the, the prominent among them are un, acting unjustly. There we have we see bribes again, right? Running after gifts, um, and and again we we find the fatherless and the widow paired off, and and that is exactly what the princes among them, um, whom they do not care about, they don't bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause doesn't come to them. Therefore. The Lord declares, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Abir Yisrael, and then we have it again, Hoy, or woe, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. And here, who, who are his enemies? Who are his foes? Israel has become that. I will turn my hand against you. And then notice how quickly it turns into, again, what God will do to cleanse them, to purify them. To, to, to make them for their sins from scarlet to snow. So I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lie. Um, 
I will remove all your alloy. So that's a good thing, right? So they so they're starting to get a picture of this this idea that the that the that the purpose of of what will happen to them. Something is going big is going to happen to Israel, he's telling them. And it's this is going to be two things. One it's clearly judgment. So, right, I will avenge myself on my foes, but also it will be refining. Okay, it, it will be refining that those who are truly the Lords will actually be in a better position than they are now, um, especially with regard to their holiness. I will restore your judges at the first, your counselors as at the beginning, and afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Um, and again, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, those in her, her who repent by righteousness— but rebels and sinners shall be broken together. Um, those who forsake Yahweh will be consumed. Um, they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. So oaks and gardens, okay? So these things that you went after, this this uh, having nice stuff made out of, out of choice wood, right? Um, and having, having nice gardens to walk through. Um, you're going to be ashamed that you ever went after those things. Um, for you shall be like them, but you'll be like an, an oak whose leaf withers, and you will be like a garden, but one without water. And the the strong, and here still you know, on this uh, wood metaphor, right, shall become tinder, uh, and his work a spark, and both of them will burn together. So both the strong and the works he has done will perish with none to quench them. Um, so this is great a great refining moment that is coming for Israel. And then we see what seems what is now another another one of these uh, these these visions, okay the word that Isaiah son of Amotz saw. notice it's a word he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And here is that passage that we looked at the other day. Uh, that is identical to this in Micah 4, 1 through 3. And of course, there's uh, three options as to why they might be identical, um, almost completely identical. There are very slight um, discrepancies between them, but nothing substantive. So either Isaiah wrote it first and Micah got it from him, or perhaps said it, right? Or it originated with Micah and Isaiah got it from Micah. Or it could have been that it was known from elsewhere, and they both um, they both incorporated it into their prophecies. All of those solutions, I think, are perfectly uh, possible. We've seen how the gospel writers do this, right, using one another as a source, or perhaps using uh, sources from elsewhere and, and things. So um, uh, there, there's various arguments. Uh, I think. Uh, I think the I think Micah have uh, it being original to Micah is actually where I land with that because if you think about like the context there, it's set so nicely within the context of you know God going is going to raise up their king and um, and uh, he's going to do that in response to the uh, Assyrian invasion and um, you know I will bless the land and your king and all that stuff. Um, it fits in very nicely with that. Also, um, in the Hebrew uh, of verse 2, where, where this vision starts, or this this word starts, it shall come to pass. Um, that begins with a conjunction there 
that seems a little bit weird as the first as like the 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 first word of um of a prophetic oracle whereas in Micah it fits well with the context it just you know it just piggybacks on what came before it um but yeah this is the prophecy of of the mountain of the lord being exalted above all the other uh, mountains and all the nations streaming it uh, to it to come to know the lord and to walk in his ways uh, so I won't uh, re repeat it all here. And then verse 5 is where Isaiah starts going off on his own now. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. Uh, and I, li I like how that is, let us walk, right? Like, I'm one of you, let's walk with the Lord together. Um, and then it turns and starts addressing the Lord, for you have rejected your people because they are um, uh, super influenced by foreign nations, full of things from the East, fortune tellers like Philistines, and they're striking hands, right, like making deals with the children of foreigners. And, um, and uh, the, their land is filled with all kinds of luxury, silver and gold and treasure and horses and chariots, and you know what else? Idols. Um, they're bow bowing down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And for this reason, God has humbled them. <clears throat> Each one is brought low. And then you have this, remember, he's kind of like addressing the Lord, right? This is a, you have done this passage. And then do not forgive them, which is kind of shocking, right? Because we typically want to see people get right with the Lord and, and forgiven. Uh, but this is, um, you know, an exclamation coming from the heart of Isaiah. I'm not sure what else to say about that, you know, but, you know, he he sees the wickedness that they do and um, has seen the oppression, their idolatry and everything, like, they almost like they don't deserve to be forgiven. But of course, the Lord has is set on forgiving his people. Um, and, and then um, we see another thing here that um, crops up in a bunch of judgment oracles, and this is the notion of hiding, uh, in rocks, in caves, in the trying to cover yourself with dust uh, before the terror of Yahweh. We even see this in Revelation, this takes place. Um, <clears throat> so notice um, you've got that a couple times in this chapter, actually. You've also got it in verse 19, you've got it in verse 21. Um, but uh, not getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, so the, the haughty so, so, so the people are hiding, right? They're getting really low. They're humbled, brought low before the terror of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty. So the haughty looks of man are brought low. Um, the lofty pride is humbled, but the Lord is exalted. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Uh, so man is humbled. Yahweh is exalted in this judgment that is coming. For Yahweh of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty and lifted up that she may be brought low, against the highest of all the trees, right, the cedars of Lebanon, against the oaks of Bashan, and then against mountains and hills, okay? And the, of course, notice the figurative language, like the most mighty stuff that you can think of, um, seemingly permanent. How long has this stuff been here, right? Like, those things will be brought low before the Lord, um, when he is exalted. Um, you have buildings, high towers, fortified walls, you have their ships, um, their, their, their seafaring ves vessels, and then you have verse 11 repeated in verse 17, more or less. 
The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and Yahweh again will be exalted in that day. And he says, the idols shall utterly pass away. And um, then verse 19 and verse 21, uh, you have this hiding again, which I said, right, the hiding in caves and holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, which is uh, basically what we've already said, seen. So it's almost like there's a refrain. It's almost like this is a song and this is the chorus, okay? The people shall enter the caves of the rocks uh, and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of Yahweh from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Um, so, um, and, and this will happen when God destroys their idols, it says. So, stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath, of what account is he? So, you are so concerned with what man thinks of you, whether you're afraid of them or whether you're trying to impress them or whether you're just, um, you value what the people around you value, right? He's, of what account is he? Of course, this is compared to the Lord. All right, let's go now to Psalm 105. Uh, Psalm 105 um, is um, interesting in that, and I think I mentioned this there, that the first 15 verses of the psalm are actually also found in, in a, as a song of David in 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 22. And I think I noted when we were there that the interesting thing is, is that, uh, you know, psalm, the psalms love to tell us when they're of David, but here this one doesn't have that in the superscription. So, um, uh, so uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is very similar to what we have there. Um, give thanks to, to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. So we start with a bunch of imperatives, right? Commands. Um, give thanks, make known, sing to him, tell of his glory, tell of his wondrous works, glory, seek, seek, remember. Um, these are all things we are commanded to do. Um, these are all different ways in which we worship the Lord, singing to him, um, uh, seeking him, seeking his presence continually, wanting to be with him, wanting to be with the Lord. And I, I love seeing that in the Old Testament because, of course, they had various ways of seeking the Lord, including in prayer and stuff, right? But but if if you read a book like, say, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it becomes very clear that our access to God is so much more unhindered than theirs is, that it is, it is so perfect and so... Um, complete in Christ, that that we are able to seek the Lord in a way that they never could, and uh, that's just incredible. Having having completely cleared and cleaned consciences, um, knowing that we are fully forgiving, knowing that we are fully accepting, and so whatever motivation they had to sing, and 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 this this ends up the the thing that's distinctive about this psalm is that in First uh, Chronicles 16, it kind of just ends, um, uh, and then with with the in the days of Abraham. But this goes on to celebrate the Exodus, the great saving act of God in the Old Testament. And indeed, it is impressive. Indeed, it should be sung about years and centuries later. Um, but that is but a foreshadow of um, God's deliverance of us from bondage to sin, and, you know, the, the true exodus, the true bringing out 
of his people from slavery. Um, so as much as they have to praise God about, we have even more, and I think it's important to remember that. Um, so yeah, so so notice how verses 7 through 11 start framing it in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. He made this covenant with Abraham, a promise to, ja- to Isaac, confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, and which covenant? Again, covenant of Abraham. To you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Um, then it talks a little bit, apparently this is about when the the, the patriarchs were in the land, wandering about, being sojourners, um, how God protected them, allowed no one to oppress them, rebuked kings on their account, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. It's interesting that he calls them prophets there. Um, there is a time in, in Genesis 21 where Abraham is referred to as a prophet, where uh, that's one of the wife-sister episodes where God tells um, Abimelech that Abraham will pray for him, for he is a prophet. Um, and then we get the story of Joseph, summarized in interesting poetic form, right? You And you could clearly tell they know these stories well. Whoever's writing this psalm knows these stories well, that God summoned a famine in the land and broke all supply of, of bread. Notice that the way in which that, um, you know, kind of dove, uh, dovetails nicely with the portrait of God's sovereignty, okay? We're seeing how he's bringing judgment on Israel, now he's bringing a famine into the land, that all things do happen uh, as as God determines that they will, and um, ours is to trust that he loves us, that his purposes are good, um, and that and that we are his. Um, and indeed, in this story, you, it's, it becomes very evident as to why the famine was so you know the, at least part of the purpose that this played in God's redemptive history. So he he summons a famine, breaks the supply of bread, um, and sends a man ahead of Israel of his brothers, Joseph, sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, and his neck was put in a collar of iron. There are some details. Uh, that are new to us, this story. But if you think about it, yes, that's, you know, how slaves would have been treated. Um, Until what he said came to pass, there it's probably referring to his dreams that he had, that he told his family about before they, one of the things that contributed to his brother's hatred of him. Um, The word of Yahweh tested him. And I think what that is, is basically like, do you think I'm going to be faithful to you? Look at what's happened to you. You are a slave, and now you're in prison, right? Are you going to be faithful to the word that I have given you? Um, And indeed he was. And the king sent, released him, made him lord of his house, ruler of all his possessions. And then it tells about how Israel came into Egypt, sojourning in the land of Ham, calls it the land of Ham, not because uh, they, they, they have a lot of pigs there that they make uh, Virginia ham out of, uh, but because Ham is one of Noah's sons, and Egypt is said to descend from him. And um, during their time, the Lord made them fruitful, stronger than their foes, um, and, and, and here we have this other mark of God's, you know, God's sovereign decree. He turned the Egyptians' hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. That doesn't mean they're not responsible and accountable for their actions. What it means is that... Um, is that God's sovereign determination is compatible 
with the measure of free of free choice and free agency that people have uh, to the extent that we are still accountable for the evil that we choose. Uh, then we get then we we enter the time of Moses and Aaron who are sent to por- perform signs, miracles once again in the land of Ham. And then you have um, seven of the ten plagues mentioned here. Uh, interestingly, the ninth is mentioned first, but aside from that, it's roughly chronological. So darkness on the land, is, uh, perhaps because dark, that's that's such kind of stock judgment Im- imagery, but that's mentioned first. And then uh, the only plagues that are admitted are gnats, uh, the death of the livestock, and the pla- plague of boils. Um but uh, yeah, for um, probably to hit a nice round biblical number seven, um, it omits those three. But you know, clearly it knows uh, the clearly Psalm one hundred five. Whoever wrote it knows the story well. Um, then he brings them out. When he brings them out of Egypt, they have silver and gold. Remember this idea that they asked their Egyptian neighbors, and they were given favor with them, and so they were sent out with with possessions. And um, Egypt was glad when they departed because the dread of them had fallen um, upon it. Um, then we see the mention of the cloud of covering uh, by by uh, day, the fire by night. Um, they asked, and he brought quail, so his provision for them in the wilderness, bread from heaven, water from a rock, um, because he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. Remember his promise to, I will give you this land. So he brought out his people with joy. This was a joyful occasion, chosen ones with singing, and uh, gave them the lands of the nations. And um, that, and they did the, he, God did this, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise Yahweh. And so it's, this is just, a, I think, just a good example of how we take these stories that we know from the Bible or accounts of what we know that God has done, maybe even in our own lives, and simply the recitation and the telling of one another of these things is an act of worship, and this is something that is acceptable and good in God's eyes. All right, let's go now to 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 6, 2. I think we start with one of these statements I noted yesterday that kind of all sound very similar here in this this part of 2 Corinthians. So remember, like, um, therefore, or since this is the case, or having this, and then we do something, right? So we are very bold, 312, we do not lose heart, 4-1, even even yesterday when he quoted the psalm, right, and he says, we believe— and so we also speak in verse 13. So here we have similar kind of way of speaking here. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, right, because Paul has just that last verse we looked at yesterday, he talks about how we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So clearly that plays into the notion of the fear of the Lord. We persuade others. So Paul's persuasiveness comes from the fact that he lives um, walks by fear of the Lord, um, and we've talked about fear of the Lord a lot, and this this insight that uh, I'd love to remind people of from Exodus 20, that it is those who fear the Lord who do not need to fear Him, um, that the what God says we care about most, what He thinks about us we care about most. So it's in that posture that Paul then 
turns, uh, you know, ministers to others in this ministry of persuasion. And here today he's going to talk about this ministry that he has in several different ways, and here it, it is persuasion. Um, so what we are, because right, lots of people are looking upon us, making judgment based on how we look, how we're dressed, how we sound, um, how convincing we are, all these sorts of things. What we truly are is known to God, and I hope, Corinthians, that it's known to your conscience, that in your heart of hearts you realize it too. We're not commending ourselves to you again. Um, you know, I'm not trying to trying to convince you of why you should listen to me. You already know why you should listen to me. Um, but rather what I'm doing is I'm giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about the outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So those are Paul's critics. Again, he's not impressive to look at, um, but that's not what matters, right? Think back to David's anointing, um, that man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Uh, for if we are besides ourselves, it's for God, and if we're in our right mind, it's for you. So however we are, right, like any range of spectrum of, of, of what our current condition is at any given moment of the day, um, it's for the right things. It's for God. It's for you, because ultimately we are controlled by the love of Christ, he says. And that's interesting. This is an interesting case here where um, uh, we have a, a bit of an interpretive question, right? So that phrase, love of Christ, does that mean Christ's love for me controls us? Christ's love for us, right? Or is it the fact that we love him so much and we're controlled? Okay, so uh, in in kind of Greek uh, syntax terms, um, is this a subjective or an objective genitive? For those of you who know Greek, so but I think I think it probably is Christ's love for us controls us. I think that's what he means by that phrase here, uh, because notice what he says about it. <clears throat> he says Christ's love controls us because we've concluded this. And then he starts talking about what Christ did in his act of love for us. So, um, one has died for all, and here we have this all language being used. We've encountered this in Romans 5, we've seen it in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul will often sometimes say all, not meaning every single person without exception, uh, but rather, um, you know, um, uh, many, with pretty much the meaning many, although there is a Greek word for many, of course. Um, and 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 here's why I say that, right? Because there is a sense in which we could say Christ died for all. Now, that is a sticky question. In um, you know that you know for who did whom did Christ die for? For every single person in the world, or only for God's elect? Right? The, sometimes it's called limited atonement. I prefer definite atonement. And whatever you think about that doctrine, um, to, just to show my hand. I'm for it. <laughs> I, I do believe in definite atonement. I think oftentimes in the discussions over it, however, we are not as clear as we should be about what that little word for means. But I will say that in this text, the reason why uh, we, um, it does not seem, he does not seem to mean that one has died for every single person on the earth without exception is Notice the next is how he uses the word all in the next clause. Therefore, all have died. Okay. The 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 language of dying and rising with Christ is in Paul. I hope 
we know by now is language that is distinct for Christians, for those who are in Christ. So the all here clearly doesn't mean every single person on the earth, uh, because all died, um, or Christ died for all, and all died. You see what I mean? The, the all and the one should be the same as the all and the other. And we know by the second one that it's only for those who are in Christ. And he died for all, and there we have it again, that those who might live might that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There is the heart of the Christian life. There is why we obey him. There is why obedience and holiness follows from the gospel, follows from the word of our salvation, this free gospel of grace, because we live no longer for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. And so from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. I don't care what you look like. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care uh, how convincing uh, of a or compelling of a person you are, or all these other things that 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 man looks at. Right? We don't think of people along those lines, um, even though we once did. In fact, we even once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Right? Who is that crucified man? Uh, Paul would once have asked. Um, but we don't regard him like that any longer. Rather, we are in Christ. And guess what? If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. I actually love the way he puts it. Actually, he says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. <laughs> there, there's no, it's like, boom. Um, and that's cool, right? Because the new creation is really like what ultimately God will do with the entire world, the entire cosmos, we might say. And um, and and we bear that here, right? We we are that now. So we are a foretaste of what God will one day do, um, and that's who we are, right? Um, no longer living for ourselves, um, not regarding anyone according to the flesh, um, but rather we are a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. That's how Christians need to think of ourselves. And this is all from God. This is all God's doing, um, because through Christ, he reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of continuing that on in other people, right? Bringing—so we are his agents of reconciliation. We who have—if you've been reconciled, you are now a reconciler, um, someone who 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 serves the Lord um, by seeking to bring other people to the point where they too can be reconciled with Him. Um, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And here we have it again, entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice there, twice, that's, that's something that's now put in our hands. That's something we partner with God in. That's something, maybe a better way to think of it is, He lets us do it, right? He, um, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. So we belong to another kingdom, uh, and, and we are here in this world as ambassadors, as those who have been sent by the, the kingdom of heaven, by the kingdom of God, to be the messengers. as and, and God is making his appeal through us. Notice what a joy that is, that God is saving people, and he's using us to do it. He's using our faithfulness to do it. We implore you, 
on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I think that's interesting that he writes that to a church that is filled with Christians, maybe Christians who have had a bit of a rocky time, but nevertheless people whom he clearly regards as saved, that this is something that um, that is worth saying even to, to Christians. Um, for our sake, for our good, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Think about that. Think about that phrase. What does it mean to make Jesus? It doesn't say laid our sins on him, which would be true, right? Um, it says he made him to be sin, that on the cross, Christ was so identified with our sin that in a way, of, in a manner of speaking, that is what he became, okay? The one who knew no sin became sin for our sake. Why? So that in him, and notice this, right? He becomes sin, which is not a normal thing to say about, about a not, not a normal way to speak about this, right? But then he speaks the exact same way of us. We became the righteousness of God, okay? Jesus becomes sin for our sake. We become the righteousness of God. Amazing. Working together with him then, there it is again, right? We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, okay? So live out your faith. Don't, don't hide it in a box. Don't let it have no effect on you, but let it utterly transform you and live as that new creation that you are. For he says, and then he quotes Isaiah 49.8, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then tells them, right, this is the time to take seriously those truths. Are you hearing this? Or do your ears work? Well, then guess what? Now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Do not wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow is not promised. But if you do make it to tomorrow, I look forward to being with you then. See what I did there? And until then, keep reading scripture. Take care and bye-bye.